we literally talk ourselves out of being ready. I think like we kind of have to get out of our own way as women. I don't know if it's a, if it's a perfectionist thing or if it's a we don't feel like we should be there. What I do want to remind women entrepreneurs in particular is that like closed mouths don't get fed. She's beauty, she's grace, she's Miss United States. Just kidding. This is not the Sandra Bullock classic, Miss Congeniality. Great film, but no, this is the I Make a Living podcast brought to you by FreshBooks. And you don't need to be a pageant queen to run a business, but just like Miss America, you need to have a variety of skills to win against fierce competition. That is why I'm talking to Lisa Song Sutton, a first-generation Korean-American entrepreneur who has a talent for just about everything. She's a former model, a former Miss Nevada, but also a lawyer, a TEDx speaker, a writer for Forbes and Business Insider, a dedicated philanthropist, an angel investor with an impressive portfolio, and a successful entrepreneur in her own right. So you can leave any preconceived notion you have about models or beauty queens at the door. Here's Lisa on how she gets it all done. I'm a serial entrepreneur, a diversified entrepreneur. I have four companies that I've started here in Nevada. Sin City Cupcakes, we make boozy cupcakes. Elite Homes, Christie's International Real Estate, we're a real estate brokerage. Liquid and Lace, it's online e-commerce brand that sells women's swimwear and women's accessories. And Ship Las Vegas, which is a chain of independent mailbox rental packing and shipping stores. Wow, you are highly diversified in your portfolio there. Do you think when you're embarking on a new venture, what is it that draws you to a particular business? I'm big on legacy building. I like building lifestyle businesses legacy businesses that I can just keep for a long time and that I eventually will scale up and scale out of the operations of the business. And yet I'll still have income coming in from it and I'm still involved, but I'm not running the day-to-day anymore. Right. So I've always just kept an ear open for opportunity. I didn't start in the food and beverage bakery business. Um, I started in law actually, and I was just working full-time at a law firm when I got out of school. Sin City Cupcakes really just started on a whim. And it was because my co-founder with that company, Danielle, called me and she told me she'd been making these alcohol cupcakes. And I'm like, that's an amazing idea for Vegas. Like this is where people come to overspend, overindulge, buy and do things they're not going to buy and do at home. They will buy alcohol cupcakes. And this was the end of 2011. And I was like, move to Vegas, like, you know, move to Vegas. I'll help you start the company. And so we started the company in 2012. I modeled all during college and law school. And so that's how I met Danielle was actually from the modeling industry. And we just like became great friends. So yeah, I was like, move into my house. Like I just bought this big house, like move into my house. We'll start the company. It'll be so fun. And during the first 18 months that Sin City Cupcakes was alive, I still worked full time at the law firm. Oh, Wow. That must have been hard juggling a new venture. And then also it's not like being a lawyer is like a part-time gig. Yeah, no, I was working five and a half days a week, right? And then on nights and weekends, I was baking. I was running deliveries. I was setting up events. Like I was working, I was hustling seven days a week. And I think that's the key. Like people call themselves entrepreneurs. You have to be willing to work. You can have a company. You can have multiple companies. The key is you just have to be willing to work. What did you learn along the way? I imagine there must have been some things that you realize now were maybe newbie mistakes that you made when you were starting that first company and also working full time and 
starting a new partnership with someone that you brought to your your city. <laughs> the stakes are kind of high. What are some of the challenges if people are looking for partners that maybe you didn't think about at the beginning or maybe they're not thinking about that should be top of mind before they enter into a partnership? Well, number one, um, I mean, this is not like a fancy or sexy, but just make sure everything is papered up. So, you know, when you're doing an LLC or partnership agreement, I mean, you either, you're either going to have an operating agreement or a partnership agreement, make sure you have that contract and you don't need fancy lawyers spending $10,000 to, you know, do this whole like LLC package for you. I mean, if you and your partner sit down with a legal pad, right, a notebook and write out roles and responsibilities of like who's doing what and, you know, how are you guys going to divvy up distributions? What happens if one of you gets hit by a bus tomorrow? Like write all that down, that'll hold up in court. You just need to make sure that you have it written down in you know mutual agreement with your partner and realize that that is a living, breathing document. That partnership agreement or operating agreement should have modifications over time. Because as you get into the business, your roles and responsibilities will change. They, they will start to change and fluctuate. And so um, just making sure that that stays updated is really, really important. And then, I mean, for me, I'm a big proponent actually of teaming up with friends people you know. Um, I think a lot of people out there say, you know, don't team up with family or friends, you know, ruin the relationships, a bad idea. And I have had experiences where unfortunately business partnerships have ended, but I do have a good track record of it, you know, staying strong and going. And I think the reason for that is because there's value in partnering with someone who you know, right? Like, you know them really well. You know what they're like when they're angry. You know what they're like when they've had a bad day. You know what they're like when they're stressed out right? Like you, you've seen your girl go through a breakup. Like, so you know what happens, you know, when she's had a really terrible, awful day, all of that will happen in business too, in the course of running the company. And so I think it's a strength to already know that about your partner and vice versa, right? They know how you are. All my partners know my personality and they know how I get, you know, if something's a little crazy, I get a little high strung about things. Like they already know that about me. And so it's just something that that we incorporate into our business and then we work well together because of it, because there's no surprises about it. We made every mistake in the book in the beginning, um, but it was just that, that sheer enthusiasm that really carried us through. And then we were able to like tighten it up. Like as things progressed, it was kind of like building the plane as it was taking off. Right. But I think in the beginning, like if you really believe in an idea and a project, you're going to be enthusiastic about it. And so you'll be resourceful and find ways to make things work. Yeah, well, obviously you made it work. It's 10 years later and you're still doing it. <laughs> COVID too, which was like a, you know, 2020 was like a crazy year, obviously. I mean, we went through a period of time where, I mean, the governor shut down the strip, closed the Las Vegas strip, conventions, weddings. I mean, think about every like golf tournaments, like every major event or like anything that comes through Vegas, right? Usually we're part of that. And yeah, it was, COVID was really scary um, just because we didn't know what was going to happen, but it was a lesson in diversification for as hard hit as Sin City Cupcakes was in 2020, shipping and real estate had their best years in 2020. So talk to me about those other businesses that you started, because, you know, to look at your portfolio from the outside, it's like, none of those businesses really have anything to do with one another. Is that by design? A little bit. Yeah. Just, I think, you know, different streams of revenue coming in from different sources is key. Um, every successful entrepreneur I know, every successful investor, every successful person I know, like they have different sources of revenue, right? From different income streams, both passive and active. And then what I like about my business portfolio is that it's extremely diversified. And so 
again, you know, bringing up 2020 and like a COVID year, you can't predict a global pandemic, right? And you can't predict that like the Las Vegas Strip would shut down, that tourism would come to a screeching halt. I mean, you just, you would not predict it and for it to have lasted as long as it did. So on a personal level, you know, I thank God every day that I'm diversified. Did you do anything with Sin City Cupcakes to pivot once you realized that you were losing the tourism, you were, you know, that gets the foot traffic and the wedding business? We had to completely pivot. And like I said, you know, the majority of our clientele are tourists. And so when, you know, you eliminate tourists from the equation for months and months and months, we just shifted to a local market. I have these shipping stores, right? And they're like spread out throughout the valley. And so we bought mini fridges and put mini fridges inside my shipping stores and then turned on Grubhub and DoorDash and utilized them to, you know, start like delivering out these cupcakes, right? And we just, you know, kind of tightened up the belt. I mean, we didn't know when tourists were going to be coming back. Um, this is, you know, mid-March, right? We saw like 90% of our business for the year cancel or postpone. And so, you know, we were just like, okay, like let's survive through. And luckily we were an aged company, right? We were eight years in business at that time. And so we had low overhead and enough reserves that, you know, it's not like we had to like shut everything down. It was just more of like a pause. It was a giant pause button. Can I imagine also alcohol is sort of uh is alcohol pandemic proof? I don't, I don't know. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like un- undoubtedly it's recession proof, pandemic proof, right? Even if the Miss Congeniality reference was lost on you, I know you heard Lisa say that she put herself through school with modeling and holds some impressive titles in the beauty pageant scene. She is the former Miss Las Vegas and Miss Nevada. Because there are so many stereotypes and stigmas surrounding these kinds of competitions, you know, I had to ask about it. So my mom's a former Miss Korea. And so she called me the fall of 2013. And she was like, are you competing for Miss Las Vegas? And I was like, I don't know. I'm kind of busy. Like we just started a company. <laughs> like I'm working my tail off, you know? And she was like, you're getting ready to age out. And I was like, oh, okay. So you Wait, know, and how old like, are you? What is aging I'm out? I'm 28 at this point. I'm 28 turning 29 that March May was the state pageant. So I I was going to be 29 by the time I crossed the state pageant stage. 29 is the age cutoff for Miss, because apparently after 29, if you're not married, like you fall off a cliff, right? So, (laughs) so, you know, I'm like, okay, geez, you know? And so I buckled down, I hired a pageant coach and I mean, we just went in hard. Um, I worked with this uh, coach named Bill Alverson. Um, he's coached like back-to-back Miss Americas. I mean, his whole thing is, he's actually, he's an attorney. Um, his whole thing is communication strategy. And that's what we we buckled down on because Bill was like, I don't know how you're going to win. He was like, you're small. He was like, oh, honey. You're you need small, to- you're old. Like all the yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All the things, right? <laughs> he was like, let's focus on your strengths. I think you're going to kill it in an interview. He was like, let's have that be the focus. You need to get 10 out of 10s in interview and you need to hope for eights in swimsuit and evening gown. And I was like, okay. <laughs> it's like, and then mathematically, as long as the pageant's not rigged, he's like, you should win. And you did. Did you think at that time, maybe I'll be able to leverage this win for other business opportunities? I didn't think about that in a very like purposeful way like that, but like my interview with the judges was just so different because I was in a completely different place in my life than a lot of the other contestants. 
right? The age division is 20 to 29. Think about that, how huge that range is, right? I was such a different person at 20, you know, 24 versus you know 28, right? And so by the time I had competed, I was already done with school, right? I was done with grad school. I was already working. I was a professional. I was a business owner by then. So I just had a completely different perspective and lens about the title. I didn't look at the title as a chance to get a modeling contract. I had already done that. I didn't look at it as a, oh, I hope I can, you know, start getting bookings to like be on TV. That wasn't a goal. I already had a career. Mm -hmm. So the question was like, what am I going to do with this? It's a generic pageant question, right? Well, what do you plan to do if you win? But like, you have to have an answer. And the only way to figure that out is really by asking yourself, why the heck am I competing in the first place? Right? Why am I going through all this work and like doing this? And it was because I was like, look, I could step up what I'm doing in the community. I could really ingratiate myself in this community. And clearly I'm already invested here, right? Like I live here, I work here, I own a home here, I started a business here. Like, why not? Like, why not get further ingratiated in the community? Just level with me as a female entrepreneur. Do you feel like it helps you to have had that background or do you see situations where it has hurt you? I don't think I've ever had a situation where it hurt me. I mean, the amazing thing about pageantry, and I think just a lot of people don't realize it's based in community service. Um, When you say pageants, people think like the spray tan and like swimsuit and like that is part of it, but it's a very, very small part of it. During my time as Miss Las Vegas and Miss Nevada, it was a total of 18 months of my life. I did nearly 500 community appearances, volunteering in schools, reading in hospitals, working with nonprofits. It was the most like, craziest time where you're just like completely ingratiated in the community, literally volunteering your time. You are not paid to do this. The people that I met during that time, um, whether it was a personal connection, a professional connection, whatever it was, to this day, I still have contacts from that time period, you know, that helped me in business, that helped me in the community, uh, that support my businesses. I mean, it was just, it was an incredible, incredible experience. That's great to hear. And, you know, you can tell just from talking to you that you you're obviously extremely intelligent and extremely savvy and any misconceptions that people might have about pageant winners, you know, only being about the physical, you've blown those out of the water. Even after her tenure as Miss Nevada, Lisa continues to be a big part of her community. She's currently on the board of Startup Nevada, Nevada's largest statewide incubator, which provides mentorships, shares resources and connects entrepreneurs. Because let's be real, entrepreneurship can be lonely. Later this week, Lisa will give her top five tips to nailing your big VC pitch. So make sure you check back and nerd out with us on Thursday. If you can't already tell, Lisa is big on helping underrepresented entrepreneurs and has a lot of wisdom to share from her perspective as an angel investor. From your TED Talks, I've seen that you're also passionate about getting more women to take a seat at the table. Speaking to our female listeners for a moment, and then maybe also to our male listeners who haven't necessarily thought as much about gender in business as I think women are sort of forced to do just because we can't, we can't ignore it. It's part of our existence. How do you think we can collectively create a space where more female founders can be successful? Well, I think we first have to kind of take some personal responsibility. And I've seen time and time again, especially, you know, being an angel investor and and hearing pitches, right? I'll get pitched often, you know, female founders, male founders. And 
time and time again, I will meet a male entrepreneur who has a great idea and like maybe he has a logo and like he has no problem asking for money, telling you all the things he's going to do with it. Like he's ready to go. He's ready to start yesterday. I will meet female entrepreneurs who have a concept. They've made a prototype already. In fact, they already have a hundred subscribers to it. And I'll look at her and I'm like, why are you not asking for money? And they're like, well, I want to wait until I have 500 subscribers and I want to wait until this and I'm not ready for this. And it, we literally talk ourselves out of being ready and it drives me nuts. Like it mm. just drives me crazy. And so I think like we kind of have to get out of our own way as women. I don't know if it's a, if it's a perfectionist thing or if it's a, we don't feel like we should be there. I don't know what the underlying issue is on that. And maybe it's different for everyone, but what I do want to remind women entrepreneurs in particular is that like closed mouths don't get fed. So you have to speak up and you have to ask and you have to get that seat. Otherwise someone else will take it. Like, like, it, you know, there's a strong chance someone else will take it. It's just because you weren't, you didn't feel like you were ready. No one's ever like ready, right? It's never perfect. It's never like completely 100% perfect. So you just have to take action. And like, if you've got one prototype, great. That's the horse you need to ride in on, you know, and, and tell them like, look, this is why you're here. You need their areas of expertise and you need their guidance. You need their mentorship. You need their money to make this better. Secondly, I see it so, so often. And I think we as women, oftentimes we're very good at storytelling. We've got, you know, we, we tie it to emotions or like how this product makes us feel or come in with your data, right? Come in with metrics, come in with your data. And like, I really think it's important, especially for women to write out like OKRs for your business, objectives, key results. Because again, that's what investors want to hear. They want to hear that you've got a game plan going and that you have solid metrics that are tied to deadlines instead of just this like, and I believe we should all this. And, and, and it's just like, you know, kind of emotional argument that's not really tied to metrics or data or like hard concrete evidence. Know your data, come in with metrics, come in with OKRs already done for the rest of the year and say, if you invest in me, this is exactly what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to end Q2. This is how I'm going to end Q3. This is how I'm going to end Q4. That's what investors want to hear. And I mean, let's face it, I think it's really important to make sure that you're tying just really hard concrete evidence to show what you're going to be doing with their money, what the actual plan is. And any final recommendations of either communities that female founders can join or female funded VCs or just other resources that female founders should be aware of? You know, there's a great angel network actually of female investors and it's, it's, you know, around the nation, they have different chapters, um, but I would just Google female angel investor and then put your city. And there are like small localized groups that are just on like meetup.com. Like it'll be like really small localized groups. You can find them. Um, I love following great female entrepreneurs that also post resources like um, Sarah Blakely, the founder of Sphinx. She, you know, sometimes posts some great resources around there and obviously encouragement as well. So I think that's important too. like, just kind of take a note, even like on your social media, who are you following, right? Like what, what kind of data and like, you know, messaging are you consuming as a woman, as a female founder, as an entrepreneur, what kind of data and messaging are you consuming um, and do a cleanup, unfollow the accounts that just don't add value to your life, right? Or that you can't learn from, or that make you feel bad. 
unfollow all of that and start following accounts that that are going to give you good, solid information and encourage you. I think if you have a business idea that could do well and be attractive to like investors, VC, usually these are businesses that are, you know, SaaS or service-based, or they have the ability to scale nationwide. These are going to be businesses that ideally you'll be looking for some sort of an exit strategy because your investors have to get paid. So I think it's it's a different mentality and, and mindset when you're thinking about what type of business do you want to start and then how you want it to be able to get funding. Do you, do you fund it yourself? Is it bootstrapped or do you take in outside money? So when you were starting Liquid and Lace, because that is, that's an online fashion boutique that sells swimwear, right? Activewear, loungewear. Since that did have the ability to scale and was, I believe, the first nationwide business that your customers could be anywhere. Did you think of building that business any differently than the others, than your real estate or Sin City Cupcakes? Um, initially, no. So in the beginning, I mean, Liquid and Lace has been around for, my gosh, six years now. And so in the beginning, we we made quite a few changes over the years. So in the beginning, it started out as more of like custom swimwear. And we were working with designers out of San Diego. We were working with designers in Las Vegas. Um, and we were very focused on doing custom swimwear and then executing events. So we would do like pop-ups of liquid and lace, like a, almost a boutique. We do these pop-up boutiques at like the different casinos at their pools for like pool season. And, and that was the model. Probably about two and a half years ago was when we decided to go like e-com right? Um, we still do a pop-up once a year and we incorporate that into like a big fashion show that we'll do a swimwear fashion show that we'll do on the strip. 2020 was obviously, we didn't do it last year, but we'll do one this year. But with the e-com like track, I'm really happy with it because it just takes a lot off of our plate. Before the e-com track, I mean, we had a warehouse, we had logistics, we were shipping, we had, we had to have staff to like run and pack and ship it. Like there was just a lot of logistics on it. And now with the e-com drop shipping model, we work directly with our manufacturers who already have things made and then we're able to get the order over to them and then they send it out. So it just takes a lot more off of our plate. And we had to just kind of ask ourselves, like, what's the goal with this brand? Are we trying to turn it into a big nationwide brand where like everyone knows liquid and lace? Or are we just trying to have something that is easy, right? And, and minimal effort and, you know, has a good margin, gets us paid. People are happy. Um, I can still stay involved with the pageantry with it. We're actually the uh, swimwear sponsor for USOA. So, right. So it's like, you have to decide with your partner or whoever's involved, what's the goal with the business and like, really, what do you want out of it now? What do you want out of it later? And then kind of adjust your operations accordingly. Obviously, there are a lot of moving parts to diversified entrepreneurship. But I agree with Lisa. Your success boils down to your motivation. Take some time this week to think about your end goal and your vision for the future. We went over a lot with Lisa today. Here are a few highlights. You only live one life. Explore as many talents and passions as you can. We've said this a lot today, but I'm going to say it one more time. Think long term and nail down your end goals ASAP. Closed mouths don't get fed. If you don't ask, you might not receive. 
Find more resources from Lisa at lisasongsutton.com, where you can find links to her TEDx speeches, Forbes articles, and so much more. And the next time you're in Vegas, get yourself some boozy cupcakes from Sin City Cupcakes. Go ahead, treat yourself. The I Make a Living podcast is brought to you by FreshBooks. Balancing your books, client relationships, and business isn't easy. FreshBooks gives you the info and time you need to focus on your big picture, your business, team, and clients. Right now, you can go to freshbooks.com slash podcast and take advantage of an exclusive offer that's just for our podcast listeners. And while you're at it, check out all of the resources that we make available to you through our show notes. Our executive producer is Francisco Erzmendi. Editorial and content producer is Leo Shelvianueva. Our audio engineer and composer is James Morris. And I am Damona Hoffman, your producer and host. Follow me at Damona Hoffman and FreshBooks at FreshBooks on all of the social platforms for more tips, tools, and resources because it's your business. Later this week, let's nerd out with Lisa's Nerdisode. I'll see you on Thursday. <laughs>